This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Later in the show, I'll be joined by David Adler. Before that, though, we have a pretty special guest. Earlier today, I spoke to Francesca Albanese. She is UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. We've shown a number of clips before um, of her on on Navarra Live, so it was a real honour to speak to her. Um, Later in the show with David, we'll be discussing MSNBC cancelling Mehdi Hassan's show just two weeks after he gave a very tough interview um, to Mark Regev. So some suspicions there that there could be some sort of connection. I'm also estimate very humiliated by the Question Time audience on the issue of Israel-Palestine. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. The Israeli bombardment of Gaza has resumed after a seven-day ceasefire came to an end this morning. The Gazan health ministry say 109 people have already been killed. Both Israel and Hamas have blamed the other side for the breakdown in the truce. Israeli spokesperson Elon Levy said this at a briefing. Unfortunately, Hamas decided to terminate the pause by failing to release all the kidnapped women. Having chosen to hold on to our women, Hamas will now take the mother of all thumpings. Hamas said the blame for the breakdown lay with Israel, which had, quote, persistently rejected offers of hostage releases. They released a statement which said this. Throughout the night, indirect negotiations unfolded to extend the truce within which we proposed exchanges involving prisoners and elderly people, as well as the handover of bodies and Israeli detainees who lost their lives due to Zionist bombings. Whatever the reality, as to the reasons for the breakdown of talks, the cost for Gazans will be the same. James Elder is UNICEF's global spokesperson. He's currently in Khan Yunis in Gaza, and he spoke to Al Jazeera hours after the ceasefire ended. I've been coming here every day for a week and there are now children I know, I know by name, teaching a few kids to juggle, something to break the moment, to break the spell of of what they're under. Um, And you can see gently, gently they, you can hear explosions again, again now. You can see the gentle change as they loosen, as they, that bit of childhood seeps back into them. That was gone again today. The fear, the trauma, the look in little boys' and girls' eyes as they see and they notice that that look of their parents, that their parents are losing control. Their parents may not have the ability to protect them. That's terrifying. I sat again with a little boy I've been seeing, Rob. Um, Ahmed, he's three. He's lost his leg. He's not speaking again. He's absolutely mute. He can hear the sounds here. He's lost a leg. He's not speaking again. So he's talking there about how, you know, just over that seven days, you already started to see sort of the life come back to the eyes of, of Gazan children. Already, they are terrified again. Um, Elder was then asked about the extent of the bombing that was already taking place. The first thing you notice is, is the sound, but simultaneously, Rob, you just see in my peripheral vision or early when there are attacks, you just see people shudder particularly children, you just see that reflex action that is becoming learned behaviour of of fear seeping in. So, you know, it's it's a sound first and there's drones and I'm still unable to differentiate between what flies over and what strikes. And then it's plumes of smoke. If it's close, then you hear very quickly within a couple of minutes screams, I guess, of family members of loved ones as they see the reality of of another another person killed. Um, And look, it's kind of you, of course, of course, we would move, but as we've heard time and again, nowhere is safe in Gaza. The, the people in Shifa saw this. 
I cannot imagine. I cannot James, imagine. James, if you, if you need, and the team need to get to safety, to do so. To this hospital. Uh, of course, we don't know what safety looks like. There are hundreds of children, Rob, in this hospital who don't know what safety looks like. The medical staff, there, there is no bunker here. It's not the Ukraine. No one knows what safety looks like. They, they, they know what fear looks like. They know what death looks like. Um, and and we, we pray that, that, that those who have the influence to, to stop this, to end the trauma and end the killing, also understand what their fear um, and what death for the children of Gaza looks like. It's quite amazing though, wasn't it? Sort of seeing all of the people sort of going about their daily business behind the guy from UNICEF. There's something going overhead. Was it artillery? Was it a rocket? It's unclear. But everyone, you know, an initial look, but then going on with their day. Obviously, this is very, very normal if you live in Gaza. And um, to find out more about the humanitarian situation in Gaza as the truce breaks, I spoke earlier to Francesca Albanese. Um, she is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. I began by asking her if she had any insight into why the truce between Israel and Hamas broke down. Well, it was announced to be a temporary ceasefire, so just to um, give a moment of respite to the people in Gaza, but it was also the outcome of a negotiation to have the liberation of hostages um, in exchange for the liberation of uh, Palestinians largely arbitrarily deprived of their freedom. The demand in the West was for a humanitarian pause. Now, as you say, this was always supposed to be a pause, not a permanent ceasefire. I mean, how humanitarian has it been? What humanitarian purposes have been achieved by this week-long truce? In international law, there is not such a difference between of semantics. So there should be a ceasefire uh, to leading to cessation of hostilities or a ceasefire is for humanitarian purposes to evacuate um, the, the sick and wounded and to allow uh, the passage of a humanitarian aid, um, which, is, which should have occurred uh, on a steady basis in uh, during this war, and it has not happened. You're saying it hasn't happened. There hasn't been a situation whereby humanitarian aid has consistently been able to get to people in Gaza? Absolutely not. But this was a purpose, uh, an intent, the goal of also part of these operations because the, the Israeli army uh, through Galant declare uh, a full full siege of Gaza. There was already a siege on Gaza before the 7th of October and the siege was tightened uh, as of the 7th and uh, for over a month uh, fuel, uh, food, uh, medicines and other essential supplies were prevented and again the the passages between Israel and the Gaza Strip remains remain sealed they would say that you know more humanitarian aid has or more you know more supplies have been allowed in obviously the fact that they allow supplies in you know shows the situation we're in this is a siege but they would say that you know conditions will have improved somewhat over the past 7 days would you dispute that i wouldn't say that because the First of all, the living conditions in Gaza have uh, become, I mean, people who are there, and I speak regularly to uh, former UN colleagues, and they they describe it steadily uh, as hell on earth. Even the director of uh, 
WHO yesterday said that in the coming days and weeks, the same amount of people who have been killed by Israeli bombs, which are between 16,000 and 20,000, might die uh, out of out of disease. The situation is tragic. The infrastructure is completely, I mean, nearly uh, entirely destroyed. 50% of the civilian infrastructure is uh, either destroyed or severely damaged, so non-functional. There are no hospitals, no, no medicines. Whatever has entered uh, was not sufficient, wouldn't have been sufficient at times of uh, non-hostility. So imagine now with a population of including 1.7 million forcibly displaced uh, from the north to the south and uh, over 35,000 injured. So fighting has resumed now. I want to read you a quote from Anthony Blinken. So he's U.S. Secretary of State and see how seriously you take it. So he said, the imperative for the United States is that the massive loss of civilian life and displacement of the scale that we saw in northern Gaza not be repeated in the south. Um, Do you see that as reassuring that the U.S. is now making those sorts of noises or do you see this as just hot air? It's better to say that rather than staying silent and saying, keep on reciting the mantra of self-defense. At the same time, it doesn't reassure me because I've, I've just seen the plans of uh, the parcelization of Gaza that has been put forward by the Israeli army. So they are creating areas to, <laughs> to push the people out of also what remains of the south. So there is, it, it, it's becoming more and more real, the risk of deportation of Palestinians into the Sinai. And, and it's unfathomable. And when you say deportation to, to the Sinai, I mean, I know this is the language that Israeli politicians have used. We've spoken about it lots on this show. I mean, from your perspective, what could that look like practically? When you say there is a risk of deportation to the Sinai, what would, what would that be? A sort of agreement between Israel and Egypt and then them sort of just bombing to the extent that there is no choice for people but to leave? I mean, what are we talking about here? No, no, there is no choice whatsoever, because, you know, um, what Israel has put forward, the, what I call the personalization of Gaza, is, uh, is uh, a, a plan where the army has uh, divided the, all the, the land in zones. There should be safe zones, safe zones to uh, protect uh, the civilian population to allow them to seek refuge in, in a nutshell, not to be forcibly transferred, as it has happened from for the people from northern Gaza. But this is what will happen, because there has been no negotiation with anyone on the ground for safe zones. And so the army is advancing and taking control of larger portions of the territory. So what's going to happen is the people will, will be amassed, as it's happening already, toward the south and toward the Egyptian border. And what's going to happen next? One way or another, if Israel is not stopped, these people will be forced to uh, flee somewhere. And the only exit there is Gaza into the Sinai. But this has been the design uh, suggested by some Israeli uh, leaders since the very beginning. And also, let me say, the Sinai, the Egyptian solution, has been evoked by many even before in Israel, by, before the 7th of, uh, of October, saying the Palestinians should leave Gaza. Because, again, this is, this is another way for Israel to get rid of the Palestinians over the land that many Israelis see as the land of Israel. 
it's incredible. It's incredible that it's happening in 2023. You say if Israel can't be stopped, I mean, do you have a sense of how Israel could be stopped? Where where do you have hope for how, you know, there could be a, a resolution to this that isn't the one you've just painted out? Absolutely, because the entire uh, international order that emerged out of the ashes of World War II is designed and has in itself methods to stop abusive powers. And again, no one here denies the fierce attack that Israel has suffered and the many Israelis. This is out of question. Israel has the right to protect itself, its territory and its citizens. But what it's doing has nothing to do with uh, with that. It's about, I mean, b- violating international law uh, at the expense of the Palestinians who are who remain protected people under international law and Israel should ensure that. So because Israel is violating international law through and through, there should be measures taken against Israel, the measures afforded by the UN Charter, like diplomatic, political and economic measures. And none of it is being considered for Israel, not even the suspension of of transfer of of arms, of weapons. Is it being considered by, by anyone? I suppose what I want to get a sense of is... Do you have an awareness that there is a push to hold Israel to account from some countries, some governments, but other governments are blocking it? Obviously, the U.S. is is Israel's biggest supporter. But, you know, are there any waverers or do you just see that, you know, everyone is basically sitting on their hands at the U.N.? Look, not in the West. The the West is almost entirely aligned with uh, with Israel so far. And, and it's incredible to me, given the level of destruction, devastation, and the death toll in uh, in, in Gaza. Uh, there is uh, there is a change in Europe because there are a number of principled countries who are taking a different stand. But it's not going. I mean, they're demanding accountability, but it's not going as far as demanding uh, like coercive measures as it has been done with Russia. Uh, but outside of the West, yes, of course, there is such a demand uh, by uh, by some member some member states in the global South, uh, but not as strong as it should be. I want to go back to something you said a moment ago about Israel having a right to protect itself, and I know there's been some some ambiguity about this because um, you you said recently at a at a conference or a press briefing that Israel, as an occupying power, doesn't have the right to defend itself. So. What is the international law here? What, what does, you know, obviously there's all of these laws um, when you are at war, so proportionality, et cetera, not targeting civilians. But what are the, what is the international law when it comes to Israel having the right to make war against Gaza or to defend itself against Gaza or to defend itself against Hamas, to use the words of the Western politicians? I mean, what is the law here? I agree with you. There has been so much ambiguity. And I think, in fairness, a bit of it depends on on language, on semantics. Because, again, I, I'm very careful with the language. And I say Israel has the right to protect itself, its citizens and its territory. And so it had absolutely the right to also... Um, repel the attack and also take uh, action against uh, the rockets, for example. What it didn't have, and this is the huge misconception, 
is the right to defend itself under international law. Because uh, this is a term of art under Article 51 of the UN Charter. The right of self-defense is means the right to wage a war, the right to use military force against one state, which is posing a threat. And this is not the case. I mean, Israel cannot do that toward the Palestinians because Gaza, it's still occupied as the rest of the of the occupied territory, West Bank and East Jerusalem. And even there is even jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice uh, that stipulates that the right of self-defense in the form of the right to wage a war cannot be uh, claimed against uh, the population maintained under belligerent occupation. But this is why, since the very beginning, Israel has insisted in qualifying Gaza as a uh, as enemy or hostile entity, which is one of these other legal concepts that Israel uh, crafts that is doesn't exist in international law. What's a hostile entity? There is either a state or an unknown state actor. And against a non-state actor, you cannot wage a war. All the more, all the more, as it's um, the risks, the threats against Israel emanates from the territory it maintains under belligerent occupation and also a blockade. I'm just trying to understand this myself because this is quite complicated. I mean, what implications does that have for what Israel legally can and can't do? So it, it, you're saying it can't call it a war, but, you know, how does that change where it can and can't bomb, for example? It does change a lot because, first of all, there could have... Okay, if Israel... I've vented uh, in other contexts and it has not been taken seriously... The hypothesis that has worked in many other contexts of having um, a, a, a UN-led military force intervening, Israel has always been against any form of a multilateral intervention, but this has worked elsewhere in the world. But however, if Israel wanted to carry out operations, um, there were so two things. The resp- those responsible for for the attacks uh, on the 7th of October had to be brought to justice. So, so one step could have been uh, to go to the um, to the to the ICC and uh, and and give mandate, including from from the Israeli side, because Israel is not party to the ICC. But however, for investigation and prosecution. But the other thing, Israel wanted to neutralize targets, could have had targeted military operations. Because, by the way, illegal as it might be, in the um, unilateral withdrawal from Gaza in 2005, Israel retained itself the, the right to carry out strikes. And it has always done. And again, without debating the illegality of it, because this is another issue, it could have, it could have carried out individual uh, selective um, targeted strikes. It has not done so. It has bombed entire civilian neighborhoods, churches, mosques, bakeries, the sewage system, the uh, the um, uh, the water plant, Andra schools, and hospitals. The level of devastation is immense. Anyway, Israel admits that out of the almost 20,000 victims, between 1,500 and 2,000 were combatants. It means that 90% of the victims are civilians. 
Is it possible that one of the most sophisticated military powers in the world could not avoid this carnage? Could you talk about some of the attacks Israel has made against the UN specifically? So it's constantly sort of suggesting that UN agencies especially are sort of one and the same as Hamas. Um, their representatives at the UN General Assembly sort of have been turning up in in, in, in yellow stars to sort of invoke Nazi Germany. I mean, it, is this having an effect? Does the does the UN feel cowed um, to, to some degree, do you think? Oof, I cannot respond on behalf of the UN because, I mean, many, many UN staff members, many agencies have been targeted uh, at one point or another by the vitriolic attacks of some of the yeah, of the Israeli officials, um, it's against uh, UN rules and basic decorum, I would say, also calling for the dismissal, for the resignation of the UN Secretary General. I would say this is all unprecedented in the history of the United Nations, but in fact it's not, because in um, it was um, there is a precedent, Madeleine Albright, asked for the resignation of the then UN Secretary General who who uttered words of condemnation for the operation that the US was carrying out in uh, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, I think it was Iraq. So but it's 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 very inappropriate. I, and being on the receiving end of continuous smear campaigns simply for advocating for the application of international law and for Choosing a path of of justice and humanity for both Palestinians and Israelis, I can say, I mean, it's 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 really disturbing. You are UN Special Rapporteur for the entire occupied Palestinian territory. So, can I can we just end by me asking you briefly to talk about the situation in in the West Bank over the past few weeks? It's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, I, again, as someone who has lived there and was engaged on the question of Palestine with Palestinians and Israelis for for over 15 years now it's really it's really hard to process how things have simply collapsed um in the west bank since the 7th of october the attacks uh, by armed uh, settlers and uh, soldiers against defenseless palestinian community have skyrocketed and there are over 20 communities, both in rural areas and so small villages and Bedouin communities who have, who have been forcibly displaced. So they have packed their belonging and gone because they didn't have any means to protect their children from, from the violence of settlers who have been armed, by the way, by Israeli ministers like Begbir. And then there have been over 220 people killed many in cold blood captured by CCTV cameras. Uh, It's shocking. And there are thousands of people who have been arrested and and detained. And many of them, including those who are already in jail, have have been severely abused. There are reports of people who have been uh, killed in, in Israeli custody. I mean, with this situation, with this scenario, with this full-on assault by Israel and Israelis on the Palestinians, and without condoning any act of violence that the Palestinians might have committed and might commit against the, 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 the Israelis, who should also be accounted for, of course. But with these 
situation that is really pushing Palestinians and the Israelis into the abyss. Why does the international community doesn't send a protective presence to the occupied Palestinian territory is uh, is un- incomprehensible for me. That was Francesca Albanese speaking to me earlier today. And live, I'm joined by David Adler. Um, David, a pleasure to have you back on the show. Um, quick thoughts on that interview before we get on to Israel's war plans, what they might be? I've got a lot of thoughts, and I think that uh, it's going to take a sort of more panoramic reflection on where the international community is at. There are some sources of hope and inspiration. We're seeing some mentions of Palestine coming out of COP28, for example, uh, Gustavo Petro of Colombia, who's been very clear-minded, brave, courageous on the question of Palestine, explicitly linking the question of the climate crisis to the prospects for a free Palestine. Uh, but in other areas, I think we've been, you know, tremendously disappointed. Uh, in the segments today, Michael, we'll get into the questions of what's happening, particularly in the sort of Anglo world uh, between the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, and few surprises there in terms of the degree of kind of reactionary endorsement of the ongoing genocide in Gaza. But I think more surprising and worth more interrogation from from our side and and more kind of thought and consideration over the coming weeks and months is why the international community elsewhere has been rather slow on cohering around a set of demands uh, and making substantive moves to either break diplomatic ties. We've seen too few nations move ahead with breaking diplomatic ties. Uh, you know, just we've seen in the European continent, for example, Israel just recalling its ambassador, but uh, Spain not even, you know, which is seen as a kind of beacon of hope and courage on the European continent, not moving fast enough. But even in countries where we would expect there to be a much more principal position towards a more multilateral response, I think there's a dog that's not barking and it's worth us spending a bit more time to think about why that is the case and what is going to require to overcome the kind of um, you know muted response of the international community uh, as the ceasefire gives way to a new round of genocidal violence uh, across both Gaza and the West Bank. We should definitely come back to that theme as the show goes on. I'm going to go with our next story on war plans. Um, with fighting resuming in Gaza, attention turns once again to Israel's war plans. And the Financial Times has a new write-up. So they say, Israel plans long war and aims to kill top three Hamas leaders. Now, the FT say that according to several sources familiar with Israeli preparations, the campaign against Hamas will stretch for a year or more, with the most intensive phase continuing um, into early 2024. They write this, The multi-phase strategy envisages Israeli forces who are garrisoned inside North Gaza making an imminent push deep into the south of the besieged Palestinian enclave. The goals include killing the three top Hamas leaders, Yahya Sinwar, Mohammed Daef and Marwan Issa, while securing a decisive military victory against the group's 24 battalions and underground tunnel network and destroying its governing capability in Gaza. Ominously, the Financial Times spoke to a source who said this, Gaza City isn't finished yet, nor fully conquered. It's probably 40% done. For the North as a whole, it will probably require another two weeks to a month. So, I mean, you've you've all seen to what extent Gaza City is completely destroyed. Apparently, that's only 40% done. Um, I suppose potentially what they're doing now, so, you know, most of the damage was done from the skies, right? It was done by bombing. They are now essentially occupying um, North Gaza. So, I wonder if they will be spending a lot of time trying to destroy those tunnels. Um, Most of the fighting is now expected to be focused, though, on the south, um, including Khan Yunis and Rafa. 
heavy bombing in the south could in theory be even more deadly than Israel's heavy bombing in the north. Um, there are around 2 million people now in the south of Gaza, and they have no other part of Gaza to flee to. So before, when it was a bombardment of the north, they could tell people in the north to go to the south. Where are the people in the south supposed to go? Um, in response to concerns such as that, Israel has suggested Gazans can stay in the south, but they could assemble in a 17-square-kilometer safe zone labelled the al Muassa safe zone on this map. Um, there is no suggestion how such a small part of Gaza could sustain life there. Um, as for the purpose of all this, the FT have this report, or it's from the same report, a transition and stabilization phase of the war, which will follow the main ground campaign, is intended to prepare Gaza for a new post-war order without Hamas. Several insiders said the Israeli government had so far refused to engage on whether the Palestinian Authority, the weak body that administers limited parts of the occupied West Bank, would be positioned to retake control over Gaza. No one, not even the US, can talk to them about this, said one of the people familiar with the discussions, emphasising Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's need to keep his far-right coalition allies on board. Regardless, Israeli officials maintain that they are committed to first achieving the original war aim, eliminating Hamas as a threat from the Gaza Strip, no matter what comes afterwards or how long it takes. The main difference now that Hamas doesn't understand, we have patience. Everything changed on October the 7th, said one of the people familiar with Israel's plans. Um, so, you know, in these past bombardments of Gaza, what has happened is Israel bombs for a while. Then after a few weeks, the international community says, now's the time to stop. And they stop. That was what was called mowing the grass. So they would go in every few years and, and just try and diminish Hamas's capacity and kill a bunch of people in the process. Now they're saying they're not mowing the grass anymore. This is now a long war where they're going to try and achieve much more ambitious war aims. Um, so they have patience. They still, though, won't lay out their actual war aims, their actual plan for Gaza, even to their closest allies, like the United States. The United States giving them diplomatic and military cover, even though Israel haven't told them what they actually want. Now, that could be for one of two reasons. Either Israel don't know what they want, or what they want to do is too grim and too illegal to admit. Jonathan Shamir is a reporter at Jewish Currents and gave this summary of a report in the Hebrew language newspaper, Israel Hayom. Um, so Jonathan tweets, um, Israel Hayom, one option considered by the war cabinet is the thinning out of the Gazan population to the minimum possible level. While most of the security establishment opposes this, Netanyahu sees this as a strategic goal and asked Ron Derma to formulate a working plan. The article gives a sense about how this may look, the need to bypass international pressure and avoid scenes of Egypt shooting refugees at Rafah. The sea is also open to Gazans. Israel can open the sea crossing at its will that will enable a max, mass exodus to Europe and African countries. So Jonathan tweets, the reporter, Matty Tuchfeld, also echoes the, these enabling euphemisms. So, quote, this is not about transfer, but about releasing the stranglehold on Gaza's borders. The phenomenon of refugees in war is an accepted thing. He goes on, the government itself is reportedly split on this program. Smotrich, Ben-Gavir and some Likud ministers see this as a necessity, while others such as Gallant, Gantz and Eisenkot see this as somewhere between an unrealistic fantasy and an abominable, immoral plan. Um, so they are discussing how do we get rid of everyone in Gaza, essentially. That's what that means. That's what that translates as. And the IDF have published a worrying map today. They say it will be used to communicate to Gazans where they 
are about to do airstrikes, where Israel are about to bomb. Now, the numbering system here is supposed to be used to inform Gazans where they need to vacate at any moment. And the IDF website where this map is up says, quote, please pay attention and check this map. Anyone who sees the block number in which he lives or is near it must track and follow the instructions of the IDF through various media outlets and obey them. It is a way to preserve your safety, your lives, and the lives of your family. So everyone is supposed to remember the number block in which they live and then constantly um, have the, their eyes peeled for what the media is saying. Very, very difficult in a place with not much electricity. Notably, though, it has this, this area beyond the Gazan border in Egypt, which is called the buffer zone between the Gaza Strip and Sinai. So when they're talking about how are they going to actively depopulate Gaza, having written on a map that this is a buffer zone in Egyptian territory, now, I'm not sure if before publishing that map, they made some agreement with the Egyptians, because up to now, the Egyptians have been very, very, not just reluctant, they've been outright opposed to the idea that any Gazans will be relocated to Egypt. I mean, in part, because they think that will be them facilitating a Nakba, also, they think it'd be very destabilizing. There's a very weak government at the moment in Egypt. They are not keen um, to have a lot of Palestinians move there, right? A lot of Palestinians who will be wanting to um, fight for Gaza back, right? There could be border wars, could take the whole of the Middle East into a completely chaotic situation. Um, David, I mean, I think what really stood out to me here is that Israel is getting so much, you know, the US or the UK, the Western governments can say whatever they want. In in reality, they are getting so much, so much support, diplomatic, financial, military, to do what they're doing. And according to reports such as these, they haven't even told them what they intend to do. Right, so they've just said, "Can you can you give us all this support so we can continue bombing Gaza?" We're not going to tell you why. You know, we're not going to tell you the plan, but just keep giving us the support, and the support keeps coming. Yeah, this map to me is like the most harrowing uh, new development uh, because what it suggests is that we've heard you. You're concerned about indiscriminate killing. Now we're going to do indiscriminate killing with these. Uh, in these smaller units. And we're going to make a map to show you, to suggest that we're trying to be more attentive to some of those humanitarian concerns. But it's another distraction. They really think that we are not hearing what they're saying and watching what they're doing. Because the goal isn't that each one of these houses, each one of these units might be the home of some Hamas operational unit. Even by their own mathematics, there is no relationship between the civilian casualties of this war and the targeted military operation that's intended to take out Hamas. This is a shock and awe operation, and they have been explicit about this from the beginning. The goal is to make Gaza uninhabitable, to thin out the population if they can succeed to transfer that population. And we keep getting drawn into these uh, completely absurd debates about whether things are discriminate or indiscriminate, whether um, you know one uh, Israeli uh, official's words have been twisted or taken out of context. But the map, the game plan has been clear from the beginning. So the, the glorious aspect of shock and awe, which is a strategy, of course, they learned from their strongest back in the United States, it, it doesn't require a plan. It requires uh, this massive deployment of force and then really trying to, that's a strategy and the tactics will come along the way. I think it's it's remarkable and we need to be really honest with ourselves about where the UK, where the US is at vis-a-vis -vis that strategy of shock and awe, which of course they, they have uh, developed and deployed themselves and is now being borrowed by Israel in its campaign against Gaza. The US 
you know, another distraction would be to take uh, Biden's tweets or Secretary Blinken's statements at face value. Uh, the truth is that any hint of even conditioning the level of military support that the U.S. is providing to uh, Israel is considered anti-Semitic, uh, you know, anti-Zionist. And in the, uh, I'm not sure if your listeners or viewers would have seen, but in the House resolution that passed last week with one dissenting vote, that is to say total consensus with one dissenting vote from a Republican, anti-Zionism is now, according to the U.S. House of Representatives, equivalent to anti-Semitism. That's now said to be codified into U.S. law following that vote on the floor of the house. So we are so far from any shred of accountability when it comes to the US support for and relationship to Israel's campaign in Gaza. And what I think worries me is when we get too caught up in the questions of the current composition of the cabinet or the far right nature of some of its individual personalities uh, that speak out and say, you know, extremely horrendous and, and, and blood curdling things about Palestinians or the absence of innocence in Gaza. Because if you look back at things that Netanyahu has said in the past, he's been very clear-minded about his relationship to the international community, to the United States and to the UN in particular. He's been very clear-minded about what it would mean for the UN to try to step in and temper down Israel's behavior. He said very clearly in a home video that's recorded and now available for public view, we'll tell them to go fuck themselves. And the US, they're going to back us regardless of what we do. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing that conviction, that two-decade-old conviction, be tested in reality and be tested to be true. Netanyahu was, was right, that the relationship with the US has proven to be so uh, unbreakable, so unshakable in the face of these horrendous crimes against humanity, that there's almost nothing that I can imagine, save for the deployment of literal atomic power on the space of Gaza, that could provoke a reaction substantially uh, reducing the US diplomatic support and legal protection for Israel in this present campaign. Mm. And I suppose, I mean, going back to what you said beforehand, is that is your hope for, you know, any kind of accountability or limiting Israel's plans from countries in the global south? I mean, is that is that where you're coming from here? Or yeah, I think that there's two very clear avenues. I mean, I don't want to be too prescriptive on the show, but I think that there are two promising avenues for what it might mean for us, your viewers, our broader political community to take these things seriously. One we've already begun to see is the kind of direct action through trade unions, actually just, you know, throwing sand in those gears of the war machine. We saw this, you know, in the case of the famous Rolls-Royce workers taking on Pinochet uh, in Chile, things that can actually substantially, you know, clog those arteries of complicity and uh, and that can be done not just by national governments, that can be done by municipal governments who have extensive procurement contracts with Israel, that can be done by the trade unions taking action on their shop floors. There's lots of ways in which direct action can have a substantive and, and, and material impact on Israel's capacity to wage this war. And then the other thing is looking at these governments in the global south, which um, you know still maintain really extensive uh, their own procurement contracts. You know, and you, you take the case of Colombia, and, and of course, you know, I admire tremendously the courageous and visionary leadership of President Gustavo Petro speaking out from the very beginning and tweeting his way through this conflict, uh, um, speaking out for a free Palestine. But Colombia still has uh, tremendous deep, uh, terrifying uh, engagement, um, e economic engagement, as well as obviously diplomatic engagement uh, with Israel. So, you know, even where we look at those places in the South that have taken, you know, rhetorical stances, we still need to be focused on the material relationships that are um, 
that are determinative in the course of this conflict. And on that, I'm afraid to say we are really far behind. I think that it's very easy in a highly mediatic landscape to uh, get high on our own supply and think that uh, a lot of these protests that we're leading are sufficient uh, to change the narrative and change the political calculus, therefore. But what again, with that map that Israel shows, is that Israel is very easily able to accommodate some of the primary concerns, even when they reach the highest levels, um, and, and and just basically say, okay, yeah, we're, we, we hear you, and we're still going to continue this really, you know, violent, genocidal campaign at whatever human cost, um, because that's really not what's going to shape uh, the trajectory of this conflict in the medium and long term. Um, let's go on to a sort of different area, the media. Um, you've talked about a lack of accountability when it comes to politics, um, accountability in the media. We've we've had some bad news over the past two days, or yesterday, in fact. Mehdi Hassan has been one of the few mainstream hosts in the Western world who has put proper scrutiny on Israel's actions in Gaza. That's included highlighting the genocidal statements from Israeli leaders, as he did here. When it comes to quote-unquote intent in the context of the Genocide Convention, listen to what Israeli politicians and generals themselves have said. Cabinet ministers like Yov Gallant, the defense minister, who said Israel was fighting human animals and ordered a complete siege on the Gaza Strip, no electricity, no food, no fuel. Or energy minister Israel Katz, who said no electrical switch will be turned on in Gaza, no water pump will be opened and no fuel truck will enter until the Israeli abductees are returned home. Or heritage minister Amichai Ilahu, who said blow up and flatten everything in the north of Gaza and give that land to Israeli settlers. And if you think that's bad, just listen to the man in charge of Israel's government and military speaking on Saturday. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible. And we do remember and we are fighting. That was Prime Minister Netanyahu invoking a biblical story in which the Israelites were told to exterminate, to literally kill all the men, women and children from an ancient tribe called Amalek. Not a great reference when we're debating accusations of possible genocidal intent, I think we can all agree. So statements like that won't be new to you guys. We've been highlighting this stuff for weeks now, but not many people in the mainstream media have. You don't see many segments like that in the mainstream media on MSNBC, on the BBC here, on, 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 on CNN, for example. Um, Mehdi Hassan has also been an exceptionally tough interviewer. So two weeks ago, he put questions like this to Netanyahu advisor Mark Regev. True, Why I'm did not your sure military spokesman on Monday point to a calendar in Arabic and say these are the names of terrorists on them? That's false. Can you accept that here and now? I, 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 I'm not aware of the, uh, the, the incident. Let's put up the so image. We have the image. You have I, no I can't read Arabic. It doesn't help me. I have well, no comment. You, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with the Does your spokesman but, uh, read you, Hang on, I have a question, Matty. You're a journalist. Have you made a professional mistake ever? Not intentionally, no, but have you made a professional I'm, I'm, mistake? I'm, exactly, and I own up to it. Have so you made, made a mistake? So can, can, not so can you own up to so, the mistake? So if I made, if I've made mistakes, you've made mistakes, but there's a difference between making an honest mistake and between Hamas that deliberately exaggerates numbers Unde to suit its propaganda purposes. There's a huge Understood. difference. So it sounds like... It's like it's, so, it sounds, so, so hold on, hold on. You said propaganda. Can we just deal with your colleague Ophir Gendelman's tweet? It's still up seven days later. Why has it not come down? It's a Lebanese short film. We can put it on screen. It's not Palestinians faking their own injuries. Can we own up to that mistake and take that down? Is that not propaganda? I, uh, uh, once again, I understand that that was also a mistake. And, so why is it still uh, up seven I'll days speak later? to Offer about it if you like. I'll speak to Offer about it if you like. He's Great. a friend of mine okay. and a colleague. I quite like him. He's a good man. He's actually very effective. Why is he effective? Well, he's he speaks a mother tongue, Arabic. Mark. I, Mark, I agree. He made a mistake. 
Mark Regev is not the kind of guy who who usually admits to making mistakes, and, and Mehdi Hassan got him to admit twice there um, that Israel had made mistakes when it came to pushing out fake news. Right? I haven't seen many other journalists do that over this period. Obviously, we don't get to interview people like Mark Regev on this show. Those were tough questions. And as I say, forensic interviews like that are all too rare in the mainstream media. Yet, what is Mehdi's reward? Well, he's had his show taken off air. The news was reported in Semaphore magazine, and they write this. Two people familiar with the move, which MSNBC privately announced to staff Thursday morning, told Semaphore that Hassan will become an on-camera analyst and fill-in host. Over the past several years, Hassan became a cult favorite online for his tough interview style and impassioned monologues. But these never translated to rating successes on the weekends or during fill-in appearances on primetime shows. The decision has provoked outrage among progressives. Noura Erekat is a Palestinian human rights lawyer. She said this, MSNBC cancels Mehdi Hassan's show. MSNBC make this make sense. Mehdi Hassan's program felt like an oasis on air and more needed than ever. His program with Mark Regev was a whole class on journalistic method. He should be amplified, not shut down. And Cenk Yuga from The Young Turk said this, MSNBC cancelled Mehdi Hassan's show because of course they did. It's not just because he treats Muslims as real human beings. It's also because he actually challenges his guests. And that is the biggest heresy in mainstream media. Access must be protected. Um, David, I mean, this is, I mean, to me, seems like an enormous shame. Um, We can probably only infer the reasoning. Um, What do you think has gone on here? Well, you know, Michael, as your U.S. American correspondent, I have to say I'm just not at all surprised. And it's it's tough to overestimate the influence of, of the Zionist lobby in, in the United States uh, and, and the things that they're able to say and do in the most brazen fashion. Just a few days ago, we had a, a fundraiser for the IDF in New York that, you know, blew up into kind of a big festive party. Uh, I think there were a couple of Israeli Jews who came in and protested and, of course, were violently removed. But, you know, it's very hard to imagine a, a fundraiser for an army. Army, uh, that's very what's bragging about you know uh, the slaughter and humiliation of of millions uh, of of people uh, in Gaza and across the West Bank. You know this is a kind of the nature of the of the Israeli exception in, in the United States, and we just have to see this play out in our politics, which is now playing out so dramatically. Uh, you look at a guy like John Fetterman, uh, Senator John Fetterman, who was feted and and promoted by the progressive flank of the Democratic Party for obvious reasons, his working class credentials, taking on the establishment. And then if you read a recent res- investigation, I'm forgetting where it was published, so forgive me for that. Um, but you, you you can see how over the course of that campaign, the Democratic Majority for Israel, which of course related to APAC, kind of got its claws into the campaign and basically said, you know, we're going to sink you unless you change your policy on Israel. And now this guy is draping himself in the Israeli flag and has become one of the biggest kind of apologists for the present unfolding genocide in Gaza. Meanwhile, on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, there's a vigil and for, you know, for the ceasefire and and people, you know, trying to speak out about Palestinian uh, plight, and there are like six people holding candles. It's tough to overestimate the extent uh, to which the consensus, the Zionist consensus in the U.S. is uh, not just signed and sealed, but vacuum sealed. You know, it's, it's, it's almost uh, Im- impossible to break. Um, and I think this has to do, it's helpful to get a bit into the weeds, on, it's not that much in the weeds, on, on U.S. politics for just a moment. We are, I think, the only country in the world that has congressional elections every two years. I don't, can you, I mean, obviously there are parliaments that are dissolved and come back 
dissolve and come back uh, around the world. But we have fixed congressional terms of two years, which means that our members of U.S. Congress have to run campaigns and be reelected every single two years. Now, of course, those are huge consequences and, uh, related to the extent to which we can actually govern the country when, you know, 18 and every 24 months are spent fundraising and uh, managing a campaign. But it, it, makes, it means that uh, our electoral system at the congressional level is extremely porous. Now, We've seen groups like Justice Democrats come around and take advantage of that porousness through primary processes that can guarantee a voice or a space for progressive politics. Justice Democrats, that's now being wound down in the absence of a sustained source of funding. But it means it's also porous to a mighty uh, hypertrophic APAC that is willing to spend hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of dollars to unseat progressives who are uh, taking a stance uh, against Israel. We're seeing this now um, in the naked brazen offer of $20 million dollars uh, to, to Nasser, another candidate, to run against Rashida Tlaib, who's been the sole voice to really take on the Zionist lobby in the United States. Um, and, you know, so when we look at the U.S. mainstream media, you know, I think that your tweets said it well. There's another dog that's not barking, which is, you know, people taking this question seriously and, you know, interrogating some of the propaganda, lies, um, fabrications that are coming out of uh, the highest levels of the Israeli government and, of course, civil society. Um, but if, if, if we look at the political system and so we see that lock that uh, APEC and other groups are able to, to exert on the U.S. political system, it shouldn't be any surprise for us that the kind of parasitic uh, mainstream media um, world, which sort of sits like that little shark under the belly of the great big shark, which is the U.S. political system, um, uh, you know, would would be attentive or you know cautious or you know thinking twice about uh, putting anyone who might be critical of of Israel on the air. And Mehdi, I just think you know crossed enough of those lines that someone said, okay, we've had enough of this um, of a of a guy who's giving you know token appreciation to the Palestinian cause, uh, and it's just it's been too much. And so it shouldn't come as any surprise to us, I think, because because you know this is uh, a very long-standing uh, unspoken tenet uh, of the U.S. kind of mainstream media world, which is you just don't do that. You just don't call bullshit um, on on the Zionists, and you don't speak too loudly on the behalf of the Palestinian cause. And of course, now that we're seeing uh, this new round of violence take its vicious and visible toll in, in Palestine, the grip those organizations is only going to strengthen. Now, it can strengthen in a productive way, so there's more tension, you know, the distance between where the U.S. public is and where that elite consensus that's so dominated by the Zionist lobby is, is growing by the day. But we should expect those talons to be even stronger as they kind of grip on to uh, 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 the, the institutions to which they hope to, that we hope to influence as they begin to lose their grip over public opinion. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this will have an effect beyond just the actual people who were taken off air, right? So if, if someone as, as, as famous as Mehdi Hassan can be taken off air, I mean, as we say, we, we can't confirm the precise reasons, but it does seem like a bit of a coincidence if it is during um, the Israeli bombardment of Gaza that probably the most critical person of Israeli policy has been taken off mainstream television. Obviously, there was also that story actually immediately after October the 7th where MSNBC took a number of Muslim hosts off air. So they're not being exactly subtle about this. And... As I say, this has an effect on directly on people like Mehdi Hassan, and that will reduce the the quality hosting we see on that platform. It's also going to have a terrifying effect for everyone else. You know, if if you were considering, is it worth me putting my neck out to to criticize Israel? If you've just seen someone that high profile lose their job, you're going to think twice, aren't you? 
exactly the same when it comes to politicians. If you're seeing um, Rashida Tlaib having, you know, people being offered multi-million dollar bribes, essentially, to, to stand against her, if you're weighing up whether or not to put out that tweet criticizing Israel or whether or not to ask that question in, 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 a, in a select committee um, to, that's critical of Israel or that sort of points to the truth of what's really going on, you're going to say, well, you know, if it, if it could happen to those really high profile people, what would happen to me? What would happen to me, right? It's just, it puts this completely chilling effect throughout American society. And I know people who work in entertainment in, in, in the US and they are terrified of speaking about, about this stuff, right? Because they see that people are losing their jobs and their careers. And that's a, you know, a very helpful way, isn't it? Of reducing criticism for something, make everyone terrified. They can lose it. You don't have to bother with argument and reason and debate. You don't even have to bother with sort of producing propaganda because you can just fire anyone who criticizes you. Very, very authoritarian. Before we go on to our next story, um, we've got a video premiering on our channel this weekend. It's an exclusive behind the scenes. Look at how downstream is made. Um, Ash and Aaron talk about how the show uh, got started and what they have planned for 2024. The video will be available on our channel from 3 p.m. on Sunday. There's a link in the description below. Esther McVeigh has recently been promoted to be the government minister for common sense. Yes, I'm not joking. Um, that is how they briefed her new role. Um, she recently put that common sense into action on Question Time. Esther, the government has been in lockstep, as, as indeed have Labour, with uh, America saying, you know, that, that the time was not right for a ceasefire. I mean, Joe Biden is saying now... Extending the truce is America's goal to keep this pause going beyond tomorrow. Is the government's position changing along with that? Well, I think we are all pleased there is a pause. We're pleased that hostages are being handed over. We're pleased that humanitarian aid is getting not into to northern Gaza. Gaza. Um, not to not, not to my family. I just need to point that out. It's not getting to everywhere at all. It's and you'll be and you'll enough. be you'll be closer to, to that than I am. But we need to make sure that aid is going in and that people can leave. But Israel is saying at the moment, as I say, as we're, as we're broadcasting now, it could change, that they're going to start fighting again tomorrow. Now, America seems to be shifting its position, saying actually that's not what we want to see. Are you shifting your position? We've called for, which there needs to be, these, uh, these breaks, these well, We've got stops, one of those. I'm talking about from And tomorrow. it's extended. But I think people as well need to look at the situation. And you can't just have a one-sided ceasefire. Hamas has got to surrender. The hostages have got to go free. And people also need to realise that Israel does have the right to defend itself. What happened there were the worst terrorist attacks Israel had ever had. What they did, the killing, the butchering of people, the taking of children. Hamas has done absolutely terrible things to its own people okay. as well. They will have known there would have been a retaliation by the Israelis for what they did, and they've put their own people in harm's way by using their own civilians to protect the Hamas okay. fighters and to protect their uh, warring infrastructure. Really interesting the words that are used to describe violence on each side, right? So Hamas are always butchering people, whereas Israel, they bomb people, and as a result of that bombing, people die, right? So it's not only the active and the passive voice, it's using sort of uh, language which suggests these people are the barbarians and these people are the civilized ones. Now, you might have seen this week, there was um, a, a report now been verified by Human Rights Watch showing that Israel left 
five babies in a hospital, in a neonatal unit, to die, who her, their, their parents have just returned to the hospital to find them decomposing, right? So, so if we're looking for language to suggest who's barbaric, right, we don't need to look far when it comes to Israeli actions. Now, obviously, I mean, Hamas also committed atrocities. But you, you only see this kind of language, the language of barbarism, when it's, when it's applied to, to the weaker side, you know, or the, the side which is not an ally of, of the Western powers. Now, in that clip, you saw Leila Moran sitting next to Esther McVeigh. Now, she's um, an interesting character throughout this because she's a Lib Dem MP and a British Palestinian. This is how she responded to McVeigh's comments. Can it I is just absolutely say how awful. Offensive this is. Awful. Can I just yeah. say, please? Can I say, my fa my my family have nothing to do with Hamas. Mm. Nothing. The family member of mine who died worked for the UN. His job was to. He was an engineer and he taught people how to fish. The idea that Hamas and going after Hamas allows collateral damage to the extent that we've seen in the Palestinian innocent civilian Palestinian population as we've seen. And may I just say, I am as angry about that as I am about those hostages. Do you know some of those hostages were people who, there was an 85 year old woman who had survived the Holocaust, who was in the peace camp. She was talking about the oppression that Palestinians feel. There is something about this that makes people want to pick sides. Mm. Can no. I just point out? No, and no, the government, it's awful let me on all The government sides. has picked a side and it feels that way to the Palestinian people, but you don't have to pick a side. You can stand with Israel and care about innocent civilians in Palestine. You can stand with Palestine and want the hostages and Hamas and how gone. Are we going At to the get moment, Hamas the government is not saying that. They're saying pick a side and I disagree. Okay, all right. How do we Zoe. get Hamas okay. to surrender? Zoe. This is how stupid political discourse is in this country, right? She's saying she wants a ceasefire. She, she, she wants um, uh, this truce to last a bit longer. But how do we get Hamas to surrender? Now, uh, when do peace negotiations ever involve one side completely surrendering, right? There are very few wars in this world where one side gets total victory. So the Second World War is often the example that's given, which I think is why people often call Hamas Nazis, because there is this example from history, this very, very rare example, in fact, from history, where you can look at total victory of one side over the other. Very, very rare. So if you are waiting for one side to surrender, you're going to be in a very, very long war. If you say you want peace, but we've got to get one side to surrender, you don't want peace, you want more war. And yes, we don't have too much evidence that Hamas are especially peace-loving, right? They aren't perfect partners for peace negotiations. But neither really could, right? The party in charge of Israel. They want a greater Israel from the river to the sea, and they've killed 6,000 Palestinian children in seven weeks to achieve that aim, right? If we can't have peace with Hamas, why can we have it with Likud? But Esther McVeigh was representing the UK government position. No one would ever say, well, we can have peace when Likud stand down. No, we can have peace when Hamas surrender, but Likud, who were just a genocidal, who, who don't want any kind of compromise, who want greater Israel from the river to the sea, right? They can stay in place. We trust them when they kill lots of people. When Hamas kill lots of people, oh, that's, that's, that's dodgy. When the IDF do it, brill, brill, that's fab, that's civilized murder. Luckily, the audience weren't impressed. Esther, I find it so upsetting hearing you say that about Israel as the right to defend itself. Of course it has the right to defend itself. Nobody's going to say what Hamas did was ever acceptable or okay. But nor is going in in the way that Israel have gone in now with impunity, complete impunity from the US, 
I'm from the UK, starving out children. The amount of children and women that have died in this conflict, it, there are war crimes that are happening. And our governments, it feels like they are siding, you know, with Israel. You're right, we should not be picking sides in this, but absolutely, what has Israel got over the UK and the US that is allowing this to happen? Because it's horrendous. 8,000 children. 8,000 children dead. One and a half million people displaced from the north to the south in one of the most densely congested regions of the world. This is not proportionate whatsoever. And no conflict of this sort has ever resulted in the long-term benefit of a nation. There has to be a plan for the day after. Uh, and at the moment, that's not taking place whatsoever. I hear this a lot in on people like you guys talking about it, that Israel has the right to defend. Where, and never I have seen, heard this question, where is the right of the Palestinian to defend? Why is the Palestinian not have that right to defend? The second to last audience member you saw there said 8,000 children have been killed. So the latest figures from the, from the Gazan Health Ministry say 6,000 children have been killed. Of course, it's still an incredibly harrowing number, but just to clarify there. Um, David, I mean, what I find interesting about this is, you know, most, you know, I suppose people on the left, sort of many viewers of this might have strong opinions about one state, two state, Zionism, et cetera, et cetera. For most people in the public, they just don't like seeing thousands of kids being killed, right? They, they don't trust our government when our government says, oh, no, no, it's, it's perfectly moral and decent to kill all of these kids. That's fine. Um, they've got good reason to do that. Um, they're, they're, they're completely justified in killing 6,000 kids over the course of a few weeks. People just don't really buy that, do they? I think Israel's in kind of a, a bind because on the one hand, uh, you're totally right. Um, we're seeing uh, the a global reaction to the images that are impossible to contain. You know, is even if they block internet access and cut off electricity, the world is witnessing this genocide hour by hour, day by day, and that's a problem for Israel as the global view of their project and of Zionism more generally begins to shift and shift rapidly. But on the other side of that bind. <clears throat> Israel cannot stop this war. It does not want to stop this war. And part of that is because uh, the rules of war are so much more latitudinous, provide so much more diplomatic and legal cover for a government than committing atrocities in so-called times of peace. So Israel is going to be able to do the things it wants to do in Gaza, much more if it sustains a long war. And also because of the domestic political benefits that are provided by war. This isn't a logic that many people were saying was, you know, motivating Putin, for example, if you read the work of Volodymyr Shenko, making the case that there are domestic motivations for starting war that have to do with the mobilization of society, of shoring up political support for an otherwise unpopular government, which is the same political logic that we see playing out uh, following many months of protests on the streets of Tel Aviv and elsewhere against the behavior of Netanyahu, uh, you know, convicted on corruption charges and uh, and facing down uh, political trouble for the erosion of uh, separation of powers between the political and the legislative and the, or executive and judiciary. So there is that tension, which is that you know Israel is making a bet. Israel is making a bet that you will forget. Israel is making a bet that you will lose your uh, capacity to stomach these images, that you'll turn off the telly, that you'll stop sharing 
on social media, some of these stories. Um, uh, and that's, that's a gamble because they know that the longer this war goes on, uh, the more people are going to see, the more sustained erosion of public support there's going to be around the world for the Zionist project. Uh, and that's, I think, where we are now. Uh, when Israel talks about a long war, what they're talking about is buying themselves the diplomatic and, and juridical um, space to uh, and latitude to do whatever they want, wherever they want to do it. Um, but they're also making a gamble that you're going to get tired of this conflict, that you're going to stop showing up to demos, that people are going to begin to think about other things and just get swept in the in the in, in the in the sort of sea of time. And I think that's where we need to be really clear minded about the political strategy and the tactics to accompany it that we put forward as a way of demanding accountability uh, from the organs of international justice like the ICC, but also about, you know, as you said before, trying to think about how to stop, throw get sand in the gears of, the, of, of that war machine. And I think that's a tension that Israel doesn't know how to resolve, guided inexorably like the angel of history with all this destruction at its back towards this, uh, you know, in ramping up its genocidal um, intentions uh, towards a kind of expansionist irredentist project of Zionism. Gabor Mate is a renowned psychologist, doctor and expert on trauma. He's also Jewish and was born during the Holocaust in Nazi-occupied Hungary. Mate now lives in Canada and he has been interviewed by Piers Morgan. I used to be a Zionist. I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a Holocaust survivor. Zionism was very important for me as a salvation of the Jewish people until I found out that the state was founded based on the extirpation, the expulsion, and multiple massacres of the local population. And that's not historically controversial. So I'm taking a longer view of this. And I'm saying that the present situation cannot be understood without looking at the historical context. And nor can we move forward if the present occupation and the suppression of the Palestinians continue. So. Sharon, your previous guest, talked about the fragile coexistence. There was no coexistence. There was oppression, periodic massacres, um, uh, land occupation um, in the West Bank, the continuous expulsion of the population from their homes. I visited the occupied territories three times now. The first time back during the first intifada, Peers, I cried every day for two weeks at what I saw. So this cannot go on. And I saw the news about the Elgin marbles being returned and how you changed your mind about that. Mm. Well, how about returning the land that's been stolen from the Palestinians? I'm not talking about the state of Israel. I'm not talking about 1948. I'm talking about since 67 and what's going on right now. So there's got to be some stop to what's going on. And that's yeah. how I understand it. No, I, this I, is for the I, sake of both Israelis and Palestinians. He just talked with such authority and compassion there. I mean, you know, he, he, he's famously a psychologist who's an expert in trauma, right? He knows how to talk about these things. Just was speaking with that, that deep compassion, I think, was incredibly disarming um, for, for Piers Morgan. I thought actually quite moving listening to that. I mean, let's take a look at another part of that debate. I completely agree with you. This is a never-ending cycle. I, I guess... From the Israelis' point of view, what happened on October the 7th was on such a gigantically horrific scale. I do get a sense that Israel is in a collective sense of trauma and that they are determined that Hamas should not be allowed 
to perpetrate such a, a massacre again. And they are on record, Hamas, just two weeks ago, their spokesman, are saying they would do it again and again and again if they can. So that represents a clear existential threat to the security of people in Israel. So I guess my, my question for you is, what should Israel's response be? Everyone is increasingly concerned about what is going on in Gaza. Clearly, the loss of civilian life is on a, 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 a catastrophic scale. Uh, nobody thinks this is right, but at the same time, I think many would share my view that Israel has a right to defend itself. The question is, how do they do that appropriately? And how do they get rid of Hamas, if indeed you think they should get rid of Hamas? Well, you're raising many questions and many fair questions. Now, look, I live in Canada, where this country was founded on the suppression and the erasure of the indigenous population and the utter denial of their narrative. And uh, in Canada, for example, there were horrendous residential schools where a few decades ago, if a native child spoke their tribal language, they'd have a pin stuck in their tongue. Now, most Canadians are not aware of that history. Most Israelis are not aware of the history of what the Palestinians have suffered. They don't know that in 1948, there were multiple massacres of large numbers of people by Israeli forces. They don't know the history, the subjective experience of the Palestinians. And in the absence of that knowledge, October 7th would just strike them as another horrific anti-Semitic event. I understand the desire for defense and certainly even a desire for revenge, but that's in the absence of knowing what the Palestinian experience has been. And the Western press, and as in all countries where the local population has been displaced, the majority of the population doesn't know the history or the subjective experience. So if you're asking me how to move forward, let's inform ourselves of the actual experience of both sides, not just one side. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, you know, to, to have the support in Israel for how they treat the Palestinians, I mean, you've either got to have a deep hatred or a deep ignorance, I think. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I assume it, it differs depending on who you're talking to, but I was talking to um, Andrew Feinstein um, yesterday, in fact, really clever guy, Jewish guy from, from South Africa, and we were talking about the differences between um, apartheid South Africa and Israel-Palestine now. And he was saying one thing he thinks is more extreme in Israel than it was in South Africa is that Israelis, Jewish Israelis, are able to quite successfully just completely ignore the existence of Palestinians. You know, Gaza, he says he, he sort of, you know, met people on the beach in Tel Aviv or whatever. And uh, people spoke as if there was no one in Gaza, you know, that the, the Palestine didn't exist. They have a life which is completely insulated from the suffering of people in Gaza and the West Bank. And therefore, when October the 7th comes around, it's just this, this complete surprise by these barbarian hordes who presumably can only be motivated by anti-Semitic hate, right? Now, you know, it's, it's, it's irrelevant to the question of justification, I think, to say that's not a very good explanation of what happened on October the 7th, right? The explanation, which isn't a justification, involves the fact that you have a people who have been laid siege to, occupied, oppressed, suppressed, and you, you have a people next to them doing the oppressing, or whose government are doing the oppressing, whose army are doing the oppressing, who are, who are able to be completely ignorant of that. And I think uh, Gabor Mate sort of talking about 
the value of just knowledge and understanding, right? Learning about this, which also is a good thing to do as a guest, right? Because often what will happen is this host will be will be trying to ask, what's your solution? What do you think the policy outcome should be? And he's like, look, I'm just here to say maybe we should understand everyone involved here and maybe that will help, right? It might not solve the goddamn problem, but it can't, it can't hurt, can it, to bring about some understanding. I mean, it can hurt Israel or the Israeli government ambition to have a greater Israel. Because obviously, if people understand more the situation of the Palestinians, they are going to be less accepting of the genocidal war that Israel are currently mounting. But if you have any you know, ounce of humanitarianism in you, then understanding is not going to hurt. Gabor Mate went on to directly address um, the question of whether Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has the right to defend itself. Every country does. But Israel has no right to impose an occupation on people now look, I was born in Hungary. In 1956, when I was 13, studying for Bar Mitzvah, there was the great Hungarian revolution against Soviet occupation. And uh, it was after that revolution that we became refugees and came to Canada. Now did Russia have the right to defend itself against the Hungarian revolutionaries? You know, so, the, and, and mostly when we talk about Israel's right of defense, we're taking isolated Palestinian actions but we're not saying that this population also has the right to defend against the occupation. I'm not justifying the terrible events of October the 7th. I'm talking in the absence of historical awareness. It all just looks like Israel defending itself. But against whom? Against the population that has been massacring in a number of thousands for 80 years and taking their lands and destroying their homes and jailing their children and torturing them. That's the history. Now, unless we know that, it all looks like this poor little country trying to defend itself, but against whom? Against people that's been occupying and displacing for 80 years. That's the history, as Israeli historians have shown. I don't make this stuff up. I wish it wasn't true. I wish I could believe in the dream of the Jewish state. I love that dream except I found out at what price, at what nightmare that imposed on the Palestinians. I think that was really important there as well. You know, he, he, he wants to believe in Israel, right? He's, I mean, he survived the Holocaust, right? I mean, he was, he was, he was a baby, but I mean, I was reading his Wikipedia, actually. I think he, he said even as a, as a very small child, he suffered a lot of trauma in part because his mum had to give him up for a few weeks to save his life. And then in his childhood, that created a lot of resentment towards his mum for that. You know, obviously his mum had made the right decision, but you know, that inevitably fills your life with trauma, even if you were a baby at the time. Um, David, what did you make of that interview? And also, I suppose, I mean, maybe this is a, a bit of a forward question, but you're, you're sort of North American, liberal, Jewish background. I mean, do you, are you coming from a similar place as, as Gabor Mate? Or are you, is that, is, is that okay to say? I mean, I could I could give a whole life story of I, my own trajectory through the Jewish world. I come from a very divided family. My my mother was raised as a kind of uh, true American Jew, you know, um, along the lines that you would see from a Chuck Schumer, for example, someone who believes in the greatness of the United States, but also in a deep fidelity to the project of Zionism as the one and only place where our people could be free 
and protected and safe after so many decades of pogroms and Holocaust. And then my father's family, who come out of the Parisian resistance, who fought the Nazis on the continent and were refugees following the war, uh, who were deeply anti-Zionist and, and never, even from, you know, in the 40s and 50s, never at all felt aligned with or complicit in uh, the, uh, you know, uh, transmission of one genocide against the Jewish people to another against the Palestinian people. And I was raised kind of in that tension in a very Zionist community. Um, it just by nature of growing up in the United States, you know, Los Angeles is a, a huge hub for Zionist thinking and behavior and, 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 and financing for the Israeli project as well. And so I think, you know, that experience taught me that it's not just ignorance and hatred, as you said before, Michael. It's also uh, a genuine kind of fear. Uh, you know, the, the, the Zionist mind uh, understands anti-Semitism as a, a kind of global virus. So when it's not just October 7th, and it's not just other moments of Palestinian violence that inform this more callous view of why uh, it is only might that can make right for the Jewish people. It's that you know, every terror attack in Paris or London or Madrid or Michigan or Argentina is part of the same raison d'etre of Israel. Every instance of campus anti-Semitism, every slur, every report about rising hatred of the Jewish people, every politician that is able to inflame that fear, every fear-stoking page on the in the in the Sun magazine talking about the potential exodus of Jews from Britain on account of the Labour Party's radical politics on Palestine, all of this informs that sense of fear, and we know what fear can do. We know what type of crimes fear legitimates because we all lived through the war in Iraq. We all lived through the bombing in Afghanistan that were justified on the basis of U.S. security, our security, you know, a war that had a full and explosive mandate from the public opinion of the United States. And so I don't think that uh, it's necessarily just, uh, you know, easy to, I, I hate this language of both sides, you know, that we just need to sit down and promote greater understanding. Because for Israel, this isn't a conflict between Israel and Palestine. For Israel and Israelis and Zionists worldwide, this is a conflict against anti-Semitism. You know, and they trace their, their um, you know, view, their conviction to uh, a, a re the regional war, right? They consider, obviously, less. Lebanon, they consider Syria, they consider Jordan, they consider Egypt. These are existential threats that surround the nation of Israel, right? So I don't believe in this. I think it's easy to get caught up in a kind of Good Friday metaphor uh, or a South African one. You know, this isn't a question of empathy and understanding. Of course, I do believe that those will be critical to, the, to charting a, a path towards a peace process and, and a solution uh, that. Uh, provides for the free self-determination of the Palestinian people. But I think it's critical to get inside the mind of what Israel and its Zionist allies across the world are thinking. Now, the problem with that line of thinking is only that it is wrong. It is wrong to think that oppression, dispossession, and occupation are the path to safety for the Jewish people. It is wrong to think that Zionist crimes are the way to instantiate and defend the project of Israel. It is wrong to think that sending weapons, endless military support to Israel makes Jews safer across the world. It is wrong to think that exploding the United Nations 
in the name of Israeli and Jewish exception is the way to defend the Jewish people. That's the problem. The problem isn't necessarily that Israelis hate Palestinians. I'm certain that a huge, overwhelming proportion do. I'm, it's not only that you know Israelis are ignorant of the Palestinian plight, although you're Michael, I'm sure you're right, that an overwhelming percentage of Israelis are able to live because of Iron Dome and you know the expansive um, occupation at the frontiers of the Zionist project in that uh, blissful ignorance. But it is also that uh, deeply rooted fear and until we can address that logic, that faulty logic, that might will make right. Now, this is the logic that's often cited by Netanyahu, that only, the weak will crumble and it's only if Israel defends itself. Right? And it's critical for us to de deconstruct and dismantle that notion of defense. It's only going to be by proving that Zionism is not the greatest source of safety for the Jewish people, but rather it's the greatest threat to the Jewish people and our safety across the world. It's only by making that case visible and clear that we can dismantle the logic that I think informs the Zionist project from the late 19th century through its present incarnation today. I mean, I suppose, I mean, it's a big topic, but it's come up a few times with, with you and also Barnaby on the show sort of making a, a similar argument. And if I was a, a Zionist Jew, I would respond by saying, I mean, what's your, your evidence? I mean, uh, the threat to Jews throughout most of history has had nothing to do with Zionism, right? Why would it be the case that post-1945, the Jews could have had a perfectly peaceful, brilliant existence um, if only they haven't, hadn't created Israel? I mean, the experience they just had was of the Holocaust where six million Jews were killed because, you know, not that they were weak, but because they didn't have any means to, to successfully resist that. So you, I, I can see why um, after the Holocaust, sort of the Zionist argument that unless you have your own state, you are going to be vulnerable was 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 persuasive so i mean how how do you respond to that argument i mean i'm i'm sure you've spent much of your life having this conversation so this is more to to get you to in, inform me how this conversation plays out but how do you respond to that point well i think it requires us to look at the birth of the jewish nation and get behind the kind of cynicism of what this actually was right this was not about responding to the logic of jewish safety and and, and self determination this was about resisting uh, jewish immigration to places like britain and the united states that closed their doors to my family uh, which is the reason why my father's family had to flee eventually from france to switzerland out to australia now uh, you know, I don't, without overstating the, or understating the the extent to which you know anti-Semitism remains uh, a very um, real and, and virulent um, a strand of social politics that can, goes around the world, I think yeah, you know this. We have to take seriously the 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 ways in which Zionism both informs that anti-Semitism around the world, uh, and, and you know the, the number of crimes that are committed with the Star of David, our holiest you know religious symbol, you know over the the bodies of dead Palestinians. That doesn't make me feel safe. But also, you know, being from the diaspora, um, you know, having family in places like Australia, places like the United Kingdom, you know, growing up in California, a place that felt very safe for Jews. These are big Zionist communities. I mean, there's a certain irony of Chuck Schumer from New York saying the only place Jews can be safe is in Israel, where, you know, you're talking from the United States. What, aren't we defending the liberal democratic values of those countries where, where, where Jews reside? Aren't, isn't that also part of this project, right? As opposed to investing in a war machine that's done in the name of, of Jewish identity, right? And to, to total, totally counterproductive uh, ends. And so I, I think that it's both critical to contest 
the notion that Zionism was in any way, uh, you know, motivated as a global project by a defense of the Jewish people back then, but also today to ask ourselves, well, where are Jews safe? What are the contexts in which, you know, the Jewish people are able to live and thrive and those communities are able to, you know, uh, uh, coexist with others? And the answer is not uh, in in Israel, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't require Israel to be uh, in, to to be so bloodthirsty, to be so discriminatory, to be so uh, to have created this apartheid, right, in the name of their defense, to double down in increasing crimes and complicity um, with you know settler violence at, at their borders, to go drifting further, inexorably drifting further to their to their fascist right until they have a cabinet composed of people who openly identify as homophobic fascists, right? So to me, part of it is understanding that uh, internal logic that is kind of a centrifuge uh, of a fascist centrifuge in, 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 the, in the Zionist um, advance or, you know, the, the internal logic of the Zionist project in Israel, but also looking at what are the components of... Um, uh, a sort of, you know, you could call it a democratic or liberal society, but a, a, a pluralist society in which Jews have been able to live and thrive all around the world. And so to point our finger at Israel and say, this is the only place that Jews are safe and, and, and thriving, when clearly Jews in Israel feel more embattled today than they ever have. Right? So even on its face, that logic doesn't make sense to me. But as a Jew who grew up, you know, in other parts around the world, uh, a very happy, you know, Jew who grew up, you know, able to have conversations about what is our past, what is our present, what is our future. I don't accept the argument that Israel is what keeps us safe. I feel much more threatened by what Israel is is doing in terms of poisoning the well of the world's view of the Jewish people. I think that makes a lot of sense. We could definitely have this conversation for, for hours, um, but we are almost at half seven. We've been going on um, for quite a while. So we will wrap up there, let our producers get on with their weekend, let you get on with your weekend, David, although I know it's a bit earlier in Mexico City anyway. Um, David, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on again. Thanks, Michael. I hope to be back uh, sooner rather than later. For sure. Um, thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back on Monday for another live stream from 6pm. Very special guest on Monday. We had a special guest today, special guest on Monday. Uh, clue, it rhymes with Mormon Blinkenstein. <laughs> You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.